So we have the Lord's table, the privilege of the Lord's table before us this morning. And as I promised in the conclusion of our study of Philemon, um, when we came to this warning sign of Demas, that, that that message last week would be helpful preparation for this morning. Why? Well, because Paul's mention of Demas at the end of Philemon reminds us of the fact that in the case of Demas, he was counted as being a co-worker or a fellow laborer in the gospel, and yet his true desires uh, were revealed to be something else, for he had a love for this present age and he followed that love away from the gospel ministry. And that is a warning sign. We talked about last time how it is that the scriptures are filled with warning signs and it's a dangerous thing to ignore warning signs. And the reason why I mentioned the Lord's table in connection with that is because we have many warning signs. We have not just Demas, we have Diotrephes, Hymenaeus, Cain, Balaam, Korah, as mentioned in the book of Jude. And when it comes to the Lord's table, of course, we have the mention of Judas, who betrayed our Savior at his last Passover meal. And so this is one of the reasons why I wanted to tie in last Lord's, Day mes Lord's Day's message to this morning, but also... I want you to know that it has been my habit in the ministry to intentionally to tie in the message that I preach to the Lord's table whenever we observe the Lord's table. Because it's my goal and desire and design to make the Lord's table the climax of our time together, not some sort of a, an appendage that you just attach to the end of the service. Um, Years ago, Sandra and I uh, attended a church and uh, they observed what I would call speed communion at the end of the, the service. It was the fastest thing I've ever seen. There was really no heart preparation. The communion uh, cups had a piece of bread on the top of it. And so you peeled that off, grabbed the bread and then you drank the cup and then it was over like that. And the Lord's table is worthy of far more preparation and consideration than that, I would say. And so this morning, again, I'm going to be addressing from the pulpit the subject of the Lord's table because of its importance. Um, scripture reminds us time and again that this is a table, this is a, a ministry of inestimable value because we are remembering the one who has infinite worth, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to give it careful consideration but also, uh, the reason why I'm going to be teaching on the Lord's table this morning, I would say this, the other reason is this, is Scott and I have been in much prayer regarding our privileged responsibility and ministry to you all. And as we are going to be having a, a, new, member a new membership class um, soon, we've been reviewing the materials for the membership class and it became uh, evident to us that a lot of the things that we cover or will be covering in the new membership class are things that would be helpful as ref a refresher course for all of us as a church. Um, and by the way, scripture gives us many refresher courses and repeated lessons. Um, I guess if we had a perfect memory and a perfect ability to learn something and apply it consistently, then we wouldn't need reminders. But remember, Peter, in his second epistle, writes to his readers 
and admits that he was repeating himself, and he said that he wrote to them again and was reminding them of the lessons that he formerly stated in order to stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, repeatedly enjoined them to rejoice in the Lord always, and he says it this way, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. We all need refresher courses, and we need reminders of even basic truths that we may have embedded in our minds, but sometimes there's a detachment between the mind and the heart in terms of our understanding, our conviction, and our application of the very truths that we know. So, before we launch the ship of the book of Hebrews, um, Scott and I are going to be addressing some matters from the pulpit that we believe are very important for all of the church body. Again, these are going to be things that we're going to be covering in the new members class. Of course, since we're preaching these things, we're, we'll have a, an abbreviated session in the new members class when we cover these same things. But I do believe that some of the things that we're going to be covering from the pulpit will be helpful for us to think about what it means to be members of the household of God. What does that look like? How do we conduct ourselves in the household of God? We did cover some of these things uh, when I first came here and was preaching through the name of the church, but even as we were covering the subject of the church, I can guarantee you there were a lot of things that I did not cover, a good number of things, and things that we really should consider together and study carefully together. So in view of this, um, I was noticing that in the membership materials that have been used in the past, there is a brief mention of the Lord's table. There are just three verses that are used or mentioned in reference to the Lord's table. And it's all fine and well as it is, but there's more to be said about the Lord's table um, than that. And uh, we're certainly not going to do an exhaustive study this morning either. But in light of what we covered last time and in light of this idea of the warnings of Scripture, when it comes to the Lord's table, there are many, many warnings about this problem of abusing the Lord's table. In fact, it's rather remarkable when you think about all of the emphasis that is placed on this idea of coming to this table, not with malice and wickedness, but with sincerity and truth. This is a key concept and idea that we need to understand. So this morning, what I'd like for us to do very simply is first of all to consider the centerpiece of the Lord's table. And of course, the centerpiece of the Lord's table is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We come to this table and partake of the elements in remembrance of him. But we need to think about what that means. We need to contemplate a little bit further what that infers and implies. Secondly, I want us to consider our priority in approaching the Lord's table. What is our priority in approaching this table? Well, it is that we should come with the spirit of self-examination, confession, and the pursuit of personal holiness. This is one of the reasons why I begin, uh, before we even partake of the elements, I begin with silent prayer in order to give us all an opportunity to confess any sins that we may need to confess before the Lord and address matters before God that need to be addressed before partaking of the elements. After that, I'll just make a few concluding comments um, before we then partake of the Lord's table together.
But think with me, first of all, about this matter of the subject of the centerpiece. What is the centerpiece of the Lord's table? Again, the centerpiece is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the Lord's Supper. It is his feast. And we come to this feast as guests. Guests as believers in Christ, as guests as those who are now members of his family, and yet it's his table, and so we come as his guests. And one of the reasons why this is important is because we have to remember and understand that the focus of the Lord's table is not on us. Again, we have a part in this in the sense of we, we need to come confessionally. We need to come with the consideration of our need to uh, come before God and not bring to it the um, leaven of malice and wickedness. But the first point of contemplation and consideration is the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the texts that we commonly use in reference to the Lord's table is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul very simply summarizes the, the observance of the table for us. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now there are many, many things that we do remember as we contemplate the Lord in this table. First of all, principally, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and we remember that he is the eternal word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us and died on the cross in our stead. He did so as the one who was fully God and fully man and achieved by the sacrifice something that no other mere mortal could achieve. Another thing that we remember in this table is the covenant of redemption, that this is the ordained plan and will of God that he would send his son, the father would send his son to die on the cross as our substitute. And so we remember his purpose and mission to die on the cross for the glory of the father, for the redemption of many from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We also remember that we have in Christ no other intercessor, no other priest. And so we bring our confessions to him. We also remember that he is coming again. Our Savior himself at his last Passover said this. He said, but I say to you, after partaking of that last Passover, but I say to you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We do this now as a rehearsal for eternity. Remember that, brethren. And so we remember that in glory, Christ is worshipped and glorified by this important identity. He is the Lamb of God. And this is his glory. 
He is the one who shed his blood for our sins. And this is why Paul helps us to think about eternity, the, the, our future in heaven. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he comes. It's that anticipation of the Lord's return that we await. And if we leave that out, we're missing too much with reference to this Lord's table. But mark this. When we confess that we are doing this in remembrance of Christ, we have to remember that this is a memorial unlike any other memorial. Over the years, I have officiated over many, many funerals. And amidst them all, there's always one confession, one acknowledgement that is offered up in every one of them. And that is the admission and acknowledgement of the fact that the one who has passed away is no longer with us. This table is entirely different. Because the one who died rose again from the dead. And he is with us. And in this table, we have a fellowship with him. A fellowship with him and a presence with him that is unlike any experience that we could ever have with any mere mortal. Brethren, this is why we call this communion sometimes. That's a good word. Because we have to remember and understand that as we partake of these elements, we are indeed communing with the person of Christ. We come and we partake of these elements and we do so as an engagement of communion with the Savior himself. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia, a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion, a koinonia of the body of Christ? What is he saying? He's, he's saying that we as a body, when we come to this table and we partake of these elements, we're not just partaking of elements. We're having communion with Christ. And we are identifying ourselves with his sacrifice, whereby he laid down his body and he shed his blood for us. Brethren, we must not miss this. That word koinonia means an association involving close mutual relations and involvement with another. That's what this is. That's what we mean when we say that this is the communion table. The body and blood was sacrificially given. His body and blood was sacrificially given so that we would have life in the risen Son of God. Thus, when we partake of these elements, we are confessing that we have this communion with Christ as those who have appropriated his sacrificial work on the cross by means of faith. So everything that he did, which is entirely efficacious for the salvation of the sinner, we have indeed appropriated by means of faith in him. Sadly, Rome takes this feast and blasphemes it by virtue of 
transubstantiation. Advocating and arguing that the, that the bread is transfigured into literal flesh and the fruit of the vine is transfigured into literal blood of Christ. Again, that is a blasphemy against what this really is. We partake of bread, we partake of the fruit of the vine, but we are partaking of Christ spiritually in our communion with him. The second London Baptist Confession says this, Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified, land all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. We partake of physical elements, but these things represent the spiritual partaking of Christ that we have in this communion, this koinonia with him in view of his broken body and shed blood. The natural man has difficulty comprehending this. This is one of the reasons why I think that the Lord's table gets brutalized and abused and turned into something other than what it is. In John chapter 6, Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, then had to turn to those who had crossed the Galilean Sea over to Capernaum, and he rebuked them because they were treating him like a traveling food truck. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to, what? Eternal life. Remember that. Then in chapter 6, same chapter, verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, is it not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then in verse 54 he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. And then they began to complain that he was actually teaching cannibalism. And they failed to understand that he was speaking spiritually of their appropriating Christ and his sacrifice by means of faith. He said... It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Our eating, our drinking, our partaking is a confession of faith whereby we admit before God that we have placed our faith and trust in the risen Savior 
who laid down his body and shed his blood for us. And this, therefore, is a communion of his body and blood. It is a communion with Christ in view of his sacrifice. Again, what is the centerpiece of this table? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the challenge, isn't it? It's so easy to come to this table without contemplating carefully what it is that we're doing, without considering the reality of the fact that we are engaging in this privileged presence of Christ in joining ourselves together as the people of God to enter into his presence and commune with him in the partaking of these elements. And brother, we need to fight against all the distractions that can enter into and interrupt this particular privilege that we have before us. Again, the second London Baptist Confession says this, the church has been given the Lord's table for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself and his death, a confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. Again, we're not just remembering someone who isn't with us. We're remembering the one who is in us and among us as our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I oftentimes, as I said at the beginning, I oftentimes preach messages that help us to rise to the Lord's table because this is a, such a precious privilege that we have before us and I never want to treat this table as a mere appendage at the end of a service. None of us do. Now secondly, here's the second principle we need to consider. And it is our priority in approaching the Lord's table. And this includes self-examination, confession, and the pursuit of personal holiness. There are many such matters of consideration. We need to consider as we come before this table our sin, our need for mercy, our need for grace. But at the end of the day, we do so understanding that Christ is the benchmark and the standard by which all these things are measured. For example, I could never come to this table with perfection, uh, with any measure of perfection of my own. My right and license to come to this, to this table is established by the merit of Christ, ultimately. But in admitting that, that doesn't mean that I can come to this table with unconfessed sin or that I should be callous and casual in this matter of the pursuit of personal holiness. As we look to Christ, we see that we all fall short of the glory of God. We see that he is our merit and the basis upon which we can come to this table. We also realize that our Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins to him. And this we must do throughout our lives, especially as we come to the Lord's table. But as I said before, the Lord's table oftentimes comes with many, many warnings. And so I just read the text of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. Remember that call to the Lord's table 
comes with it, has with it a warning. Because Paul says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this is the call of self-examination because we don't want to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Now, let me say this. That's a part of his warning that he gives in the, the 11th chapter. What's interesting about the book of 1 Corinthians is, is that Paul does this not once, but actually three times. Three times he issues warnings to the church in reference to their abuse of the Lord's table. And I want to just review those things with, with those, those warnings with you here this morning. So here in 1 Corinthians 11, here's the first one we're going to look at. Why was it that Paul was warning the church against their, uh, the danger of their coming to this table in an unworthy manner? Well, because he says back in verse 17, if you want to look at the text in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, he says this, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, he says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And here's why. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. This is a remarkable question he asks. In view of their conduct, he says, do you despise the church of God? That is a stunning question. I doubt that anybody attending this church would say, yes, I'm despising the church of God. I, I, I doubt that anybody imagined that they were actually doing that. They just thought that they were just going to come in and uh, fe feast on the, on the uh, uh, supply their for themselves in the feast, the love feast, and just carry on as they saw fit, and they just felt that they had the liberty to do so. But I doubt that any of them would say, yeah, I despise the church of God. But this is the question that Paul raises. He says, look at your conduct. Look at the manner in which you're just engaging in this kind of hedonistic, self-serving attitude. And you've got to understand something. The way you're conducting yourself, are as, it's as though you do, in fact, despise the church of God. The word there, kataphronete, literally means to think down upon something. To think down upon something or someone in a demeaning way, which speaks to the idea of, of having a low view of something. In this case, Paul is saying, you know what, you have a low view of the household of God because of your conduct. Brethren, I would say to you that man-centeredness is a very common problem amidst all churches, and we have to fight against it. 
Those who were assembling and partaking of this table, they were man-centered. They were not focusing on Christ. They weren't even focusing on their fellow brethren. They were just engaging in a hedonistic, self-serving pursuit of their own pleasure. We must never do so as we come to the Lord's table. Now, there's a second warning that is given to the church at Corinth regarding the Lord's table. And this actually takes us back to chapters 8 through 10, where there Paul was addressing the reality of the fact that there were some weaker brethren who didn't understand the fact that an idol is nothing and that a food that is offered up to an idol is not affected by that by that exchange or by that practice. And yet, there were some in the church who believed that they had such a liberty to do whatever they wanted to that some actually engaged in and participated with some of the idolatrous feasts and thought that there was nothing wrong with that. So, in a sense, from chapters 8 to 10, Paul is addressing the full spectrum of those who would be willing to eat meat that was offered up to an idol, but there was no sense of association with the practice until you get to chapter 10, and there were some who were actually associating themselves with idolatrous practices, and Paul was saying, no, you've crossed the line now. And so he says this in the 10th chapter. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. The Lord struck them down. And notice what he says in verse 6. He repeats it in verse 11. He says, Now these things happened as examples to us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And here he says it again in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's another way of saying we have the Old Testament and all the warning signs therein. You need to look at those and consider them very carefully. And then he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say, the cup of blessing which we bless, and this is the text we looked at earlier, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia, communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion, a koinonia of the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, chairs, and the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, 
But I say that the things with the, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become koinonous, fellowshippers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Those who were participating in the idolatrous practices within the pagan culture were imagining that, well, that was okay. They surmise in their minds somehow that it, if it's acceptable to eat meats that were sacrificed to idols, maybe I can take it all the way of actually participating in the idolatrous practices of the pagan culture. And Paul says, no. And when you come back to the Lord's table without confessing your sin, you're now polluting this table. But then there's an important lesson to be gleaned from this. I know, I know I've mentioned this before, but we have to keep in mind that the first century church was under remarkable pressure to participate in the activities of the pagan culture around it. And the intensity of that pressure is really kind of hard to imagine. But imagine living in a society where everybody believed around you, everybody in the society believed that you had to offer up sacrifices to, God, to the gods in order to have a good season and to have um, good circumstances in your life. Robert Ogilvie, in his book, The Romans and Their Gods, said this, the gods were essentially gods of activity. They did things such as controlling childbirth or repelling disease, and activity requires vitality. If the god's vitality was not sustained and renewed, that activity would be weakened and they would no longer be able to function efficiently. The gods were like a, a, a diesel engine. You had to keep them fueled up so that they would perform Basically, crops would fail or disease would spread because the relevant gods did not have enough vigor to perform their tasks even if they wanted to. And so probably in a tongue-in-cheek sarcastic statement, the historian, the Roman historian and polymath Varro said, I'm afraid that some gods may perish simply from neglect. Because of that mentality, because of that ideology, there was pressure on everybody to participate in this matter of offering up sacrifices to the gods. And the Christian community, which did not participate out of conscience before Christ and in view of the Lord's table, they were vilified as the haters of humanity, as Tacitus says. It's hard to fathom that intense pressure. But brethren, I would suggest to you that we have some of that same pressure in the modern day. It just comes in a different form. Perhaps some of you have heard of this recent controversy concerning counsel that was given by Alistair Begg to a grandmother who came up to him and asked him whether or not she should attend the wedding of her transsexual grandson. His answer was, well, if, if this individual knows that you love them and that you care for them, go ahead and go and participate in that, that celebration and even come with a gift. Now, I'm not a, an Alistair Begg expert. I've listened to some of his materials. I attended a conference, I think, that he spoke at one time. I've always been very thankful for his teaching and counsel, but 
this did not sound right. This did not sound like the counsel that would be offered up by Alistair Begg. So I thought, my first thought was, is, well, maybe there was a misunderstanding. Maybe somebody didn't hear what he was saying, or maybe he just didn't qualify his comments very well. But as this controversy has gone on, he has criticized his critics. He's dug in his heels, and he's standing by his defense of this idea of participating in a so-called wedding in which two men were being joined together, I believe, as a situation. Brethren, this is, this is a form of idolatry, and we have no business in participating in it. God created the institution of marriage in order to communicate the beauty and the glory of his relationship with his people. Christ, who is the bridegroom, who has been and will be joined forever with his bride in glory. That is not to be blasphemed. And to go to a ceremony in which that institution is blasphemed denigrates the name of God and it denigrates the gospel itself. You know what true love would do? What I would advise that grandmother is to say, listen, take the time to sit down with that young man and explain to that individual that you love Jesus so much that you cannot dishonor him. And then share the gospel with him. Use this as an opportunity to tell him the truth that he needs to hear. But don't whitewash the problem by attending a ceremony and offering a gift as if you were somehow celebrating with him. Engagement with the world like that, engagement with the idols of this world, pollutes the Lord's table when we come together. There's a third warning in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that comes to us in the fifth chapter. If you would turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have yet another warning regarding the abuse of the Lord's table. Here the apostle Paul says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you The word he uses there is porneia. If I had more time this morning, I'd get into a more thorough study of this. There is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife, and you have become fusiao, arrogant, puffed up, prideful, and have not mourned, Instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. He needed to be removed from the midst of the church. Paul then says this, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, Assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, your boasting is not good. And what's interesting about 1 Corinthians 5 is that Paul goes directly to this need to have this individual removed. This is different from Matthew 18. 
where you do not yet have a confirmed matter of sin and you have the situation of the conditional statement if your brother is sin, meaning you have to go to your brother just to establish whatever has happened. There you don't have certainty or certitude with respect to sin, but here you have not only the certainty of sin, but you also have people cocooning this individual and basically saying it's okay. Not a problem. And in this case, Paul says he needs to be removed. This is more akin to Paul's reminder to the church when writing to Titus that we are to reject a factious man after his first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Again, distinct from Matthew 18. But it demonstrates the need for the body of Christ to pursue purity and holiness and not to allow for people who are in the body to bring the leaven of malice and wickedness. And so Paul says, they were puffed up. He says, your boasting is not good. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that ye may be a, a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, the world's, world's filled with these kinds of people. We're not talking about outsiders of the church. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called or so-named brother. In other words, he has a reputation of being a brother, but his conduct is contradictory to that profession. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or slanderer, as some translations have, or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Again, the point of the removal of this man is really twofold. It's the need for the body of Christ to be a pure lump of dough without the leaven of malice and wickedness. That is something that the body of Christ needs to, to strive for. But the individual needs to be removed as well with the hope that he would come to repentance. Such a removal is not anger or vengeance or some sort of a, an act against the individual that disdains his soul. It is actually an act towards the individual with the hope and prayer that he would turn away from his sin and be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. By the way, that expression, remove the wicked from among yourselves, that is a Deuteronomic expression that is used nine times in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And in the Old Testament, that meant the execution of the individual. In the New Covenant, it's different. Discipline does not mean execution, but removal, again, as we just said, with the hope of genuine repentance. Again, as Paul said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the hope. But instead of this, instead of extending true love to this individual by means of discipline, this church was prideful and it boasted about its toleration of sin. Why in the world did they do this? You know what? We're not told why. We have no idea why they were doing this. Were there some in their midst who engaged in the error, the antinomian error that Paul rebukes in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, where he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Was that the perspective? Maybe, I don't know. Was this family a, a wealthy family and people were afraid to say anything? Were they powerful? Were they influential in the church and in the community? Were they founding members of the church and so nobody wanted to talk? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because whatever reasoning they had, the church was sinning by tolerating sin. They were puffed up, prideful, boasting in what they were doing. What they were doing was they were treating cancer with a Band-Aid instead of removing the tumor with the hope of healing. And they thereby polluted the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth with the leaven of malice and wickedness, thereby corrupting the Lord's table when they assembled. Three warnings in the book of Corinthians regarding the danger of corrupting the table. They're all very important, brethren. We need them. Like I said, imagine a world in which we, if we lived in, Amer in an America where all the street signs, all the stop signs, all the stoplights were removed overnight. Mayhem. Mayhem. And it's mayhem when the church ignores the, the warning signs of scripture. One final thought here. John Owen, who wrote a number of sacramental discourses regarding the Lord's table, says this about the warnings found in 1 Corinthians. He says, there were many disorders fallen in this church at Corinth and that various ways, in schisms and divisions and neglect of discipline and false opinions and particularly in a great abuse of the administration of this great ordinance of the supper of the Lord. And though I do not, I dare not, I ought not to bless God for their sin, yet I bless God for his providence. Had it not been for their disorders, we had all of us been much in darkness as to all the church in its way of conduct. The correction of their disorders contains the principal rule for church communion and the administration of the sacrament that we have in the whole scripture. 
which might have been hid from us, but that God suffered them to fall into them on purpose that through their fall in them and by them, he might instruct his church in all ages to the end of the world. Their sin, their failure, their shortcoming instructs us. It warns us. That's his point. And as I said before, it is a great danger to ignore such warning signs in Scripture. And so at this point, I would like to ask the ushers to come forward as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table this morning. <clears throat> 